Hello and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussein. Um, I have recovered from the, my second British plague. Uh, so I'm sounding a little bit better than I have been. I do miss my vocal fry a little bit. It did make me sound like a, a society girl from like the Lower East Side. Um, but yeah, now I just sound like a kind of normal, um, you know, uh, yeah, a, a, a normal uh, British person uh, with who does who does who's like nowhere near as cool. Um, I am joined by um, our very own. Uh, well, I'm joined by my co-host who I think if we did live in New York would be a society it girl, uh, Phoebe Roy. Not sure how to take that. Hiya. Uh, no, I think I think, that's a, I think I think that's a good thing. You'd be you'd, you'd go to the Met Gala or like you'd sort of like go to the aspect of the Met Gala, but the one uh, where like the influencers who don't get like the Versace and the Valentino stuff, they hang out. Yeah, this is you know, this is worse. This is getting worse. This isn't getting better. I look in my head as a compliment. I'm going to talk about it okay. later. Look, we have a guest okay. on. We don't want to like confuse them too much. Um, yeah, I have a guest on uh, who's wrote who wrote like a really interesting piece on something that we've wanted to do for a while. Coney, remember that? Uh, yeah, I'm joined by Deepo Faloyan, who is a senior editor at Vice and also the author of Africa is Not a Country: Breaking Stereotypes of Modern Africa. Uh, Deepo, welcome uh, to the show. Uh, thanks for being on. Uh, how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm doing really well. I, I I didn't think the New York reference was was an insult at all. I think that's yeah, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a there's a quiet dream of mine to just be like part of some billionaire family on the Upper East Side. Yeah, without, without, any, without any serious worries in life at all. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. All yeah. I- no, that, that 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 would that would be nice, but it doesn't have much of um much of a bearing on on my life now. So yeah. I don't know why. Why, if I was transplanted to New York, my circumstances would change quite, quite that much. That's the whole point. You fantasize about going to New York because you think that all your circumstances and problems would be um, eradicated if you did live in like a shitty one bedroom in in uh, in the Lower East Side. America's right? worked very hard yeah. to create the image that just go to America and everything will be better in your life. Exactly. Um, you know what? So, yeah. It worked. That's true, but uh, you know, I don't buy it. So, because <laughs> yeah. I'm built different. <laughs> well, look, you, I, we could, we could fund, we could fund your like transition into becoming um, a society girl on the uh, uh, in New York. Um, well, that'd be nice. And I've got a plan to do this. I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to lay it out for you in a very short period of time. Um, mm-hmm. Now, look, we've spoken about the apes, the lazy, the, uh, the lazy ape NFTs. Um, but did mm-hmm. you know? Um, did you know, because like a lot of y'all still aren't getting this, ape holders can use multiple slurp juices on a single ape. That's a thing that can happen. So if you have one astro ape and three slurp juices, you can create three new apes. Um, three different types of apes are three different types of slurp juices. Did either of you know this? I've been, wa- I've been wondering this for a really long time. Like I have all, the, I have, I, I have all this slurp juice and I just have no idea what I'm supposed to do with it. <laughs> yeah, I've got all this slurp juice in storage and everyone was like, no, why buy the slurp juice? Why not buy the NFT? And I'm like, no, the slurp, the slurp juices are all coming up Millhouse um, and now my time is there. Okay, look. Well, there was a yeah. period of time when the slurp juice went uh, went so low that it actually cost more to store it than it did to have it. So that kind of <laughs> makes sense. I mean, that's basically true right now. Um, Look, there's this tweet that was going around at the time of recording uh, on the 5th of May, 2022. Um, and it was a tweet from like the NFT space, but somehow made it into, it somehow made it into kind of like mainstream Twitter and like, it was a lot of fun. So basically like, this is a tweet from like an NFT project. Um, I have a little caveat at the end of this, which I, which I will, which will not surprise you, but will also just be like very kind of depressing. Um, 
in which uh like lazy ape enthusiasts or like the bored ape enthusiasts are trying to kind of still justify that these kind of like very badly drawn cartoon apes that like have no character or even like reason to exist are actually worth loads of money um and you just need to believe in it some more this is the first time that we sort of heard of the term slurp juice i don't know what it is i think it's like some sort of like color packet so you can basically make three different types of bored ape but are the same but have different colors but it's i don't i mean i think it's just like the term slurp juice it's just like how i i I don't i don't know i don't know i just think this is just so funny and yeah it's kind of just so indicative of like where the nft market is going and the reason why i sort of selected this as our intro point is like so two things have basically happened the first is that the nft market is basically collapsing so um, the Wall Street Journal reported quite recently that like the broad NFT market, which was, I don't know what its valuation was, but it was like absurdly high last year. It's kind of declined by 92% um, over the past like few months. Uh, apparently this is just like either the Wall Street Journal trying to talk down NFTs or people just like not kind of like adopting them enough. But then the I reckon the second reason why you've had this steep decline is because of our friend, friend of the show, Elon Musk, who um, among his other like, uh, like as he's sort of like trying to negotiate with like the Saudis and the Qataris to like buy Twitter for some reason, um, using Tesla stock, uh, he also did this. Uh, he he stole someone's lazy apes. He made a collage of lazy apes that he didn't buy. He just kind of right clicked, saved them, and turned it into a collage. And it's now his like Twitter display picture. And it's made a bunch of NFT people really mad because they're like, "Why don't you just buy these apes? You're so rich. Like, why don't you just buy the code? Why are you stealing my apes?" I think. Both these things are very, very funny. Yeah. <laughs> Depot, like, have, yeah, have you, have you got any end of familiarity of like the apes or like what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I've tried as uh, a journalist at a new media company to really try and understand this, this, this concept and the, in the wider, um, the wider point of NFTs to kind of, my, I keep coming at it like, what's the problem that they are trying to solve? Um, yeah. And I just haven't received a single good answer. Um, it just sounds so absurd. It sounds from day one like it is a scam. And it's hard because like the art world in general has worked on this basis of value only being implied because a group of people put value on stuff. And so right. in one way, it's like, yeah, sure. Like, I don't know, let a few younger artists do the same. But also the more and more you see like footballers tweeting, hey, come and join my ape club the more you get, the the further and further away you get from like the idea that, oh, well, if billionaires can scam and make some money off of uh, implied value, then so can, you know, you know, people, the average person, I guess. But also now that that's just being turned into a scam itself, um, it's like, I'm not shocked at all that it's collapsing. Can you imagine like being a parent and telling your kid that if some guy in a van tells you to come join their ape club, say just say no <laughs> like say blow, no. Your whist- blow your whistle and just say no don't go into the van which says ape club on it um no like deeper you're right like is you know we haven't done like a lot of episodes on nfts for like this reason in the sense that it feels like we would just be sort of talking about the same scam all, all over again but when we did do it, it like the kind of like takeaway from it was like no one really sort of knows what the use case of this is um like the art world isn't really convinced about it. Like the whole kind of, so, so actually like there was a, um, there was a uh, piece that came out in discourse blog uh, yesterday, which I think touched on this very well. And it also interviewed 
um friend of like all the pods uh, patrick wyman um so in the uh discourse uh the discourse blog piece it says uh, that all that all of this is nonsense. Words culled from far-flung corners of the internet culture, online gaming, technology, finance, all mashed together with crude artwork. It doesn't matter anymore. This is the world we live in, where thousands, if not millions, of people uh, get it, and they understand uh, they understand and find value in apes in the slurp, in the minting of events for lab monkeys and special forces. Um, this was taken from like just like the reference point to like what the hell slurp juice was, because I don't think they really figured it out. But like I thought that how you know I, I think that this is kind of like the right piece of analysis in terms of like what the apes at this point sort of represent which is i think like at the beginning you could sort of kind of understand what they were getting at even if it didn't make any like financial sense like okay you've got these sort of like you know you've got these images they can sort of serve as collectibles they can sort of serve as like digital art like digital artists can like use this to potentially make money and everything. And like, yeah, there's an assetized component to it, but like there's an assetized component to like actual art anyway. So like maybe it's not really that much of a departure, but at this point mm. it's also like the apes were also supposed to represent like, or at least its advocates were like, this is an aspect of like internet culture. So it's actually only like a niche community that are really into them. And they're really into like the backgrounds and histories and all that stuff. So then it fits into like, fandom but not quite so it seems like you've got all these players who are insistent that these things are worth a lot of money but they're not actually invested in both the community or the sort of like structures that like make a digital collectible or even a collectible valuable right they're not really invested in the culture they're not really invested in like like longevity they haven't really thought about like the structure of it so they're trying to use the language of like fandom standards and stuff like that but like they're very transparent in the sense of like no this thing is there to make money and i want to make money from it and that's why it exists and that's why it sort of seems like it's all kind of like flat and weird and like i think the reason why slurp juice is both like a really funny term but also illustrative of like okay you guys have really run out of ideas now hmm I actually have a suggestion for what I think the use case might be. Yes, go on. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how. Cor I don't know how correct it is. But um, you know, willing to willing to hear thoughts on the subject is that obviously, like in the kind of present time, particularly for young people, with uh, labour being devalued and precarized and wages stagnating and the cost of living uh, going going through the roof it doesn't it doesn't seem to be possible to a young person now and i'm assuming these are like mainly like mainly like young people or like um i, I don't think there are like like 50 year olds getting super into ape club i don't think that's something that's i mean maybe, maybe there maybe there are i'm not, i'd be interested to know what the kind of the age bracketing is like um but it it must become be becoming kind of apparently apparently clear that even the quite kind of modest aspirations of their parents um kind of having any kind of job security having any kind of life security the idea of there being any kind of positive change is just it's just it's just out of their reach and so the only so the only thing that gives them any hope is this um is this is this kind of tangibilized lottery and because it's because it seems to be more or less luck and more or less arbitrary which apes end up 
end up being worth a huge amount of money because uh because as we said before the 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 value is kind of assigned in an arbitrary way in the way that the aesthetic value in uh quite a lot of quite a lot of art is assi- is assigned to it by just because some just because somebody says so and so i can imagine like the idea of it being very uh being very seductive because it seems mm. like a way of circumventing the otherwise grim and precarious life that you on average might might now be just expected to lead but and then you have alongside it um what seems to be a kind of aesthetic transposition of collectible ephemera and particularly like the kind of collectible ephemera that kind of comes alongside like nerd and like nerd and geek culture like it's not it's not that different from collecting like collecting like comic book dolls or like collecting game boys or it's like it's 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 the it's the collection forming impulse but it seems like it seems like a way of or i imagine that it seems like a way of uh of buy of buying yourself a ticket out of out of the present awful circumstances through something that you find uh, that you find personally aesthetically seductive because like personally i don't understand why anyone would want a funko pop or a captain america doll or like whatever because that's not it's not to my it's not to my taste but i can imagine if i was completely steeped in that kind of in that kind of ephemeral uh, ephemeral kind of weeds of of the popular culture over the last like i don't know like 40 50 years mm. that something like something like the ape club might seem extremely seductive so i think that so i think that's the use case i think they're get they're get rich quick schemes but they're get rich quick schemes aimed at nerds which they never used to be mm. do you have any do you have any thoughts on that yeah i mean i think that i think there are lots of really really interesting points there um and it's it, i think you're right there's kind of is a mashup of lots of different scenes um i think that the difficulty with this one is that this didn't start off as like people who really, really love these apes, you know, yeah. and then it was like, oh, how can we make money from these apes that we adore and we love? Um, it started off with making money first yeah. and then let's produce something, anything, and then let's put that in the world. Like, I don't know if I've, I don't, I don't know, I've never met anyone or seen anyone who is passionate about the individual ape that they bought. Um, what they're <laughs> passionate about is that they bought into yeah. a board ape club or something um mm. and the value of their nft is rising um mm. and so that's the thing i think it's one thing if like you've been collecting something for time um mm, yeah and then the value of it started going up and you're like oh i can lean back into this childhood yeah joy of mine yeah, yeah. No, no. to make no, money no, 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 no. i do i do see what you mean but but i think like i i think that's what i mean more is like is how um how it kind of got people into it because it's like a kind of it's like a kind of investment portfolio that yeah. you would come up with yeah. to give to a child to teach them about yeah. investment portfolios yeah absolutely yeah, yeah exactly and it's also like an accessible so like there are I, I know people who like have gotten into cryptos and stuff like that and they haven't like bought bitcoin and everything but they've bought like other types of coin and for them it's very much like oh i can't really afford to like buy the high-end coins and um i also can't really afford to like you know, invest a lot of money into like the traditional stock market and stuff. But in crypto markets, 
uh, you know, I, you know, my kind of the point of entry is like lower and uh, it's easier to sort of like buy and sell coins. And because, and there is like that community aspect to it in the sense of like, oh, lots of other people are doing it. So there's like that gamification element to that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that all those are sort of combined in like, Deepo, you're right. And, you know, I was thinking about like Pokemon cards the other day and like how if my mum hadn't given my Pokemon cards away because she was punishing me for like not doing homework. Um, I could have like had some money like selling like my shiny Charizards and stuff, right? Um, or at least like overselling like, you know, my ancient Mew or whatever. Um, but it was very much like, okay, there was like the culture and the culture sort of cultivated the cards and like the cards developed like the value because of like the value of nostalgia more broadly. But there is kind of like a context behind it. But the thing with the apes, and again, it's like, it's not, I can see where the apes can kind of get their value from. But again, you know, it's again, it's like no one's actually really deep invested in the characteristics of their ape they're not really invested in the backstory they're not really invested in any of the lore even behind like the series and everything and i think it's like it just all feels very unconvincing but so then you're like confronted online by people that are like oh no these things are really valuable and they have like and they're so cool and like i love the color of the, the shade of yellow my ape is and stuff it's like no you don't you don't like give a shit about any of this right you're like trying to convince people that this is like a culture worth investing into but it's not that's not how this works. And like, you know, it's, it all just feels very sort of confused and muddled even by their own standards. And it's sort of why I think we end up at this place where it's like, all this is feels very absurd. And it seems like even the people who kind of presented themselves as being like these true believers in NFTs, like are kind of less convinced of it now. And it might explain why this like has been such a kind of crash. I don't know. I mean, like it could go up and like, you know, uh, we could have this conversation all over again. I'm pretty sure we have. I'm going to end this section by just saying like, so Patrick Wyman on the discourse blog, he kind of like made the point that like, this isn't anything new. And that like historically, like there have been several instances where like people have, especially like in, I think he was referencing like the whole, um the, uh, the tulip market, which is like what people tend to like, usually kind of draw parallels to. But he was like, when the tulips are sort of dying off, like people were trying to convince um, like the, the sellers were trying to convince people that like other flowers were just as going to be just as valuable as the tulip and to just like keep investing. So Patrick Ryman says like, I firmly believe in the dumb guy theory of history. Lots of people have historically done a lot of stupid stuff. They've bought into a lot of stupid stuff and fads and nonsense. And we tend to either gloss over it or we forget it entirely. NFTs are a ridiculous framework within to operate, but the actions of individuals do make sense in that framework. Um, Yeah. Which are you know Patrick Wyman, right as always. Uh, we'll add the link to that. Uh, we'll add the link to that uh, blog in the show notes. Um, yeah, I, like I don't know if we have anything else to say on NFTs, or shall we? Uh, shall we move on to uh, uh, another viral moment that you know had really good material effects on society? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Coney. Let's talk about Coney. Um, yeah, Depot, we asked to come on because you wrote this very interesting piece in the Guardian. Um, about the legacy of Coney 2012, the kind of campaign to uh, take on and eradicate Joseph Coney and like the Lord's Liberation, the Lord's Resistance Army, sorry. Um, and uh, it's something that we've like, it's been on our list for a while because obviously Coney was like one of the kind of more recent viral moments that you kind of memory hold, but then you kind of realize just how big it was. I remember I was in university, I was in my second year when Coney happened. And uh, I was in the library and someone was just like, I can't believe I have to solve, like do this like math problem assignment when Joseph Coney's running around, uh, which I think <laughs> is like a very, was a very funny thing to think of background. But like, yeah, the Coney craze like took over York University in 2012 in quite like 
a bizarre way. And I'm sure it wasn't, obviously it just wasn't just there. It was like a really, really big thing. Um, for people who like have memory hold Kony 2012 and just like all that stuff, Deepo, can you tell us like what happened, what Kony was and like why it sort of became this like big phenomena? Yeah. Um, so basically in, in 2003, three filmmakers, uh, three white filmmakers uh, led by a guy called Jason Russell traveled to Uganda um, and there they met a young boy called Jacob. Um, now, Jacob had been, well, at the time he was on the run from the Lord's Resistance Army, um, led by a man called Joseph Coney. Um, and so uh, Jacob detailed to the filmmakers uh, how brutal the army had been to him and his family. Uh, they'd murdered his brother, um, an act that uh, Jacob had witnessed. Um, and you can sort of understand why the filmmakers sort of responded with shock and and uh you know they felt like they needed to do something um and so for them that something didn't involve uh the ugandan government um for reasons that uh we've sort of come to uh we've sort of come to understand in the sort of aid industry they went straight to the united states mm. of america um and they you know from day one you know that their their basic uh, call was for the US government to send troops into Uganda to uh, capture Joseph Kony mm. um, and defeat the Lord Resistance Army, uh, the LRA. Um, the US government, for you know many reasons, uh, did not think that sending troops into Uganda was the right thing to do. Um, but uh, the three filmmakers, they kept lobbying uh, the government and eventually they formed a charity called Invisible Children. Um, and so frustrated by the fact that the US government wasn't doing what they wanted them to do, which is invade Uganda effectively, um, they decided that they needed to up the pressure on the US government. And their solution to that was to create a film um, that would lay out the atrocities of the LRA, uh, lay out Joseph Kony and his life um, and the story of young Jacob who they'd met um, and by making him famous to America and the rest of the world, um, that would put pressure on the US government to send troops into Uganda. Um, so the charity Invisible Children, um, the name of it comes from the, the idea that, you know, these ch children like Jacob are invisible, um, basically because the Western world knows nothing about them. Um, so that was basically the starting point for which, um, or the motivation that they got to uh, to launch uh, a creative film um, that would, by their uh, by their reckoning, make Joseph Kony famous around the world and force the U.S. government to send troops into Uganda. Mm. Like one thing I remember from the video um, was like one of the taglines that was used uh, when it was going viral, which was. Uh, which I thought was like very interesting and instructive when we think about viral content now. So the tagline was like, let's make Josie Joseph Coney famous. Um, I thought it was like an interesting one because really it was like one of the first kind of very concerted times that you saw this sort of like organization that was basically trying to really demand and put pressure on um, the US to like militarily intervene in a very specific way for them to be like, you know, sharing and like, um, uh, like posting was really a kind of form of activism, like a form of like activism and morally duty bound activism as well. Um, but the scene that I was watching a little bit of the video, which like has a nine inch nail soundtrack. I completely forgot about that. 
Um, and it's got like a bunch of like bad EDM yeah. music. And the opening text is nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Nothing is more powerful than an, than an idea is now. Right now, there are more people on Facebook than there ever were on the planet 200 years ago. Humanity's greatest desire is to belong and to connect. And now we see each other. We hear each other. We share what we love. And this connection is changing the way that the world works. Um, this uh, the the campaign uh, to get Coney was shared uh, and it featured celebrity interviews, which included Justin Bieber, Rihanna, and Pete Wentz. Um, and it also contained clips of President Obama issuing like um, U.S. troops to like intervene in the region, citing Joseph Coney. Um, it was like a very strange video of its time, but I think it's like I think that opening scroll was like very interesting because while you know, and we'll talk about this and we'll talk about this a little bit uh, later. Like while I think that like no one sort of looks back on the Coney moment with any sort of fondness or like any kind of perception that like it was like good or effective. The same type of language is kind of used like today when we're putting out like viral content, even like stuff in relation to like Ukraine, for example, like, or even the kind of tendency to like sort of share the infographics and stuff. It still operates by the same logic of like sharing as like a moral duty, but also sharing like as kind of like a form of activism in the way that like publicity and like, making someone famous uh is in and of itself like a radical act and i wonder depot like what you thought about that because you do mention like ukraine uh in your piece and just like how we kind of view contemporary wars uh now in relation to like the type of content produced to sort of both explain them and to advocate for like uh yeah and, and to advocate like particular government positions yeah i mean i think you explained it really well um there's the we're sort of in that infographic um era where the aim is to kind of share as much kind of short pieces of information as possible um to quickly educate people on a on a problem um i mean with the the coney 2012 film that's obviously very very visual i mean it starts off with um you know it starts off with uh the the, the quotes about humanity and humanity's ability to make a difference and then it goes heavy into into visuals um, to mm. try and shock and or uh, tactic um, to try and get people to to make a difference, but I think that I, I can kind of really see the connection you're you know you're making between uh, you know the aim of that video and how it's basically just one big you know please retweet this um, cam yeah. campaign, um, which is something that we've certainly seen um, you know recently with the. You know, it, I, we, we went deep during the Black Lives Matter protests, um, as well as kind of what we're seeing now uh, in Ukraine with kind of people trying to just get as much, you know, short, quick information as possible around. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think kind of it is really interesting kind of watching it back. And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily when you watch it feel like this. And I guess this is kind of part of the frustrations I have with it. Like it doesn't feel like some archaic um you know, tactic. It seems like something that uh, that can certainly still be produced today, um, especially when it comes to to Africa. Um, it's certainly a tactic that um, that people still rely on. Yeah. What was like really interesting about some of the visuals in that too? I'm just like looking at some images now. So 2012 was like an election year, and a lot of the Coney stuff. Um, the visuals that were used basically like it got the Republican elephant and the Democrat donkey, like the symbols of like the parties. 
and like join them together and it says like coney 2012 on them and it's like really this idea of like you know bipartisan like it was kind of advocating for this type of bipartisanship which was really fundamentally about like military intervention against like this one goal like this kind of like um one guy but also the other visuals where it sort you know it begins by like with these images of like child soldiers and like the images of like joseph coney and everything but as you kind of watch towards the end of the video like suddenly you kind of you're taken out of like Uganda and Central Africa and like suddenly you kind of like you're met with like a bunch of white faces and like white American like or Western faces and like one of the scenes is like a group of broadly white people holding a sign saying like we are shaping human history like it's quite interesting in that kind of in the space of that 25 minutes or something how even in the logic of that like it goes away from like Joseph Coney and much more into like um this idea of like uniting or like bringing together lots of people to like you know, for, to advocate for a specific cause in a very specific way. And it removes like from even like the intention of the video. Um, and I thought this would be a good way. Cause like, obviously one of the, like the thing that you write about in the piece is how, like, not only did the Coney campaign, like, um, mass massively both exaggerate and just like outright lie about stuff that was happening, uh, in the region. Um, but like visa kind of like affects that, many countries in on the continent are still sort of dealing with like right now. Um, and I wondered whether you could sort of elaborate on that a little bit more, like what are like, how have countries like, you know, you, you mentioned in one of the, in the piece, like there's one example you give where Uganda like was dealing with like the, the effects of Kony 2012 had sort of meant that it trying to open up to the world and like attract tourists and stuff. Like it had like a very direct impact on that. What other effects did it have on like countries that were like sort of involved in the Coney campaign or like were referenced in the Coney campaign? Yeah, I mean, again, kind of you, you make a really good point about, um, you know, so a lot of the imagery that was used in the video, you know, imagery was a huge part of the film. And one of the key themes was sort of light and darkness. Um, and where there was kind of, mm. and where there was kind of darkness and despair, we were always in Uganda and sort of, you know, what, what we've come to expect from kind of images of generic Africa. Um, and then light and hope and we can change the world came when we when the camera moved to uh, moved to the West and you had all these kind of hopeful young uh, white people um, who who had the power in their hands um, in a way that power mm. wasn't given to um, the Ugandans mm. and and the Ugandan people um, and so I think that was something that. Is, is a consistent frustration from people across the continent. Um, and in the in the book, I sort of mentioned how uh, Uganda had seen a rise in tourism year on year, right up until 2012. Um, and suddenly mm. for the first time in 10 years, uh, tourism revenues dropped um, mm. in Uganda. Now that's a, and that's one um, example of, you know, because obviously obviously the, the Coney 2012 was, was very directed towards the pain and suffering that was apparently on display in Uganda and this idea that, um, you know, Joseph Kony had just been wandering the streets, kidnapping children for mm. two decades without anyone in Uganda knowing who he is or him not being famous because mm. uh, people in the West had no idea who he was. Um, and that sort of imagery we've seen shared in other, across the region and, and a lot of countries um, across Africa have found it very, very difficult when it comes to uh, you know, trying to push towards opening their countries up to tourism and getting people to come and experience who they truly are. Um, you know, and I mentioned that kind of Coney 2012 was really just borrowing a playbook 
that had been used by you know Band Aid, especially do they know it's Christmas, mm. um, uh-huh. and other cha- and other child charity organisations that had kept on pushing this negative imagery of you know Africa is a a vast expanse of arid red soil where like nothing but misery grows, um, and it's sort of that that has been incredibly harmful to the region um, mm. and has reached the and has. Uh, contributed to the, to the situation we have now where if you ask people um, you know to picture Africa you know they, they all they normally picture is is poverty and pain um, mm. or safari you know one of those two things mm. um, and Tony 2012 I guess lives uh, in infamy just because you know at one point it was the most watched YouTube video in history um, it just went so crazy viral um, mm. that it forced so many people from across the continent to to fight back. Mm. What I think is interesting about the video is because obviously, um, as as you said, it takes it takes an awful lot from um, from assumptions which are uh, which are pushed by both charitable endeavors and by governments. Uh, in the West of of Africa as being this kind of desolate, this like desolate, miserable, um, poverty-stricken, war-torn land. Uh, But the actual video itself, I think, takes much more from advertising and from the frameworks um, and logic of advertising than pretty much any other uh, charitable endeavor has done before. And I think particularly the particularly the catch line, let's make him famous. So that's that's supposed to be like, that's supposed to be like a kind of, huh, but being famous is a good thing. Maybe there's a way of being famous in a bad way, but it kind of, but it borrows from, like just particularly kind of for our purposes, it borrows from uh, the the kind of rats in a barrel surveillance culture that we see quite a lot online like oh here is this person let's find out who they are let's Mm. find out who they are let's shame them let's make them famous Mm. and it's and it's an interesting it's an interesting turn away from the idea of uh fame and lots of people knowing about you being uh being a good thing and a desired thing and it's actually something like and it's actually something which can uh which can lead to um which can lead to a great deal of difficulty for you, and that's and that's sort of the thinking behind it. And it is, and it's worded like an advertising campaign. It's worded like they're selling you trainers, like yeah, even just absolutely. the, even just the, even just like you know, oh, there's net like there's never a stronger idea than there's never there's no, nothing stronger than an idea whose time has come. Which first of all sounds the mo- that, that sounds so Goebbelsy to me. Like that does not sound like a kind of positive message at all i don't i think that's that sounds i think that's a really creepy way of describing something it sounds like it sounds like it sounds like they're talking about the big lie really but they also don't make it clear what they mean just like they don't just like it's not made clear in lots of advertising campaigns which is which is specifically geared to sell you a product and the product they're selling you is uh is charity the product they're selling you is uh uh, is uh, philanthropy. That's the product that's being sold and they're using the same methods that are used to sell trainers. Yeah, I mean, and also in this case, they literally sell you an action kit. Um, so it's these $10 mm. action kits with posters 
and a wristband um and i can't i think there were t-shirts in this in the in the box um but yeah the idea was that you know you are going to change the world um through and this incredibly slick um as you said uh film that's that borrows so much from just kind of classic advertising um at the end of it you know changing the world is within your reach and all you need to do is wear this wristband and put up these posters um and show that you're on the right team and mm. um and the world will will change um and that, and that was kind of the unfortunate thing about it it simplified this incredibly complicated situation yeah. um and made it seem as you said like all they were doing were just you know something akin to selling trainers I think what was like really interesting about it too. So this is like 2012 and it's like kind of the beginnings of, I guess, for lack of a better term, like the kind of development of a content economy, right? So like, you know, yeah, you still have like Facebook, but like Facebook is now sort of being taken seriously, um, like beyond its kind of like capacity as, you know, a kind of social media platform, like in a local sense, you know, um, you know, and this sort of comes in the aftermath of like Zuckerberg and Obama, like, you know, palling around and everything, the advent of big tech, the sort of expansion of Silicon Valley, um, the expansion of like startup culture, I guess, like begins at this point too. And like, I think what was very interesting thinking back on that is, and with deeper what you were saying about, yeah, like if you kind of share the video and you buy the merchandise and you show that you're on the right side and it's kind of like the classic virtue signal, um, you know, in this kind of sense, but it's also like an example of like a type of politics in which fundamentally it's like, yeah, you can change the world through content. Right. Um, and like, that was the thing about invisible children, like invisible children was a marketing agency for like lack of, they, they were sort of registered as a charity and like, they kind of dissolved, I think in 2015 properly after like a number of scandals, but also because they just couldn't reproduce the same kind of thing. They had like had this one viral hit and that was it. But uh, crucially, like their whole thing was, yeah, you should fund us to go to like Africa, like to go to Uganda, Central Africa and stuff and to make videos and to just like keep on making content to put out and you should keep sharing that. You should keep buying our merchandise. And like, I think when you say that now, it's like, okay, well, this is basically how every kind of content like thing goes now right whether you're like yeah whether you're running a charity or whether you're doing a podcast or whether you're like you know everyone's kind of strategy is the same and like i'm not i'm not saying that like in all those cases they're like oh you can change the world by buying our merchandise and stuff but it's like a very kind of similar pathology of like you know you buy stuff because you're sort of showing support um because you want to like signal your support you want to signal something about yourself and like i wonder whether like the Coney campaign is really one of the first moments in which the logics of the content economy actually like emerge and become instructive in how social media platforms kind of develop. I mean, especially, and I wonder what, uh, Deepa, I wonder like whether, whether you had any thoughts on like this too, in the aftermath of like the Arab Spring and like how that was once kind of seen as like the Twitter revolution and like how social media was going to like take down dictators only for that like to not really happen. Um, and I wonder whether Coney 2012 was supposed to sort of be like, not necessarily a correction on that, but being like, yeah, you can still change the world and like platforms still have the potential to like change geopolitics, but maybe not in as ambitious a way as like was uh, advocate or was as was suggested during the Arab Spring. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, I think when it came to Coney 2012, they imagined, um, I, I don't know whether they were kind of thinking is specifically about um, the ability of Twitter to change. Well, I think they had a more, they, they just felt personally that 
virality like all they cared about was going viral yeah um and that's that's literally all they cared about and which, whichever way they could do that uh they were happy to do that but i think it and i haven't seen too many try and kind of like replicate that direct way of doing things you tend to have with things like more recent youth-led activism and i'm kind of thinking in terms of kind of across africa like uh and sars and that sort of thing the activism starts first and then it finds a home on twitter um whereas i think here you kind of had them go oh we're gonna put this on youtube uh we'll start the we'll start the hashtags we'll start tweeting yeah. celebrities yeah um and then the change will come uh twitter will sure. kind of really really spark it after that um and it's just kind of i think kind of you make a really good point kind of in the in the aftermath of the arab spring i, think, I guess that probably did really motivate um you know these filmmakers think yeah this is this is absolutely going to be um this is absolutely going to be the defining moment for uh a generation um because part a huge the a big pull of that uh of the film was how they expected it to be millennials who were going to change the world um which mm-hmm. is and you can tell by the uh the celebrities they sort of uh targeted so you know your Justin Bieber's your Rihanna's um you know at those are the celebrities that they're peak for uh, a younger generation mm. yeah <laughs> um yeah no, no no i mean there's no, there's nothing really to say about it. i think what i think what's interesting is the idea of like what comes first does is it is it like trying to grow things organically and then using so and then using the kind of the tools provided by technology to uh to organize and get messages out and find community um and find kind of active like community in activism or do you come up with the social media strategy first and like which is like which is more meaningful which is more real which is more likely to kind of have an effect and make some changes and i think it's very important to note that with the arab spring it and, and with and with later and with later uh, liberation activism mu- movements uh, all over the world, it, it is the organic grassroots movement that starts first. And you can't really generate active activism through a social media strategy. Yeah. And I think one thing that's really important to remember about Coney 2012 is they put an expiration date on it. Um, so for reasons that never... Well, so if we haven't got him by 2014, <laughs> then, we're gonna, then, yeah. then we quit. It was, I mean, that's literally... And it's it's so... And I think that kind of really uh, highlights the fact that this wasn't kind of an organic thing of, oh, you build a campaign and then see where it goes. The film was literally like, we have until uh, the end of the year to catch... And it never explains why. Um, but it literally See, just that says, was the problem. Yeah, that was says, the like, problem. This film, this film expires on December uh, 31st, 2012, um, which made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, but yeah. the, you, you could tell that like, the whole thing about it was, oh, we need action and momentum right now um, or else for some reason, uh, you know, Joseph Crony goes free, like he's in some sort of, uh, like weird bond contraption that will release him on set. Like it's so, it, the whole thing is really, really bizarre. Um, and of course, kind of incredibly insulting to, you know, Ugandans, the idea that, you know, <laughs> they're present. Yeah, it's like, you know, it, it was a very, it's a very, uh, yeah, it's a very kind of like in your face, like we only care about you for like this period, this like very limited period of time, which maybe is different, like from like, we only care about you for this specific purpose, but it's still kind of the same message of like, 
our kind of, you know, our, our compassion and empathy for you, even like working on their terms is like extremely limited. Yeah. You know, I think what I think what's interesting is seeing that it's seeing it kind of laid out in those like in those incre- incredibly callous terms. But that does seem to be how particularly activism, which is purely mediated by social media, that is how it plays out. Yeah, you, it's you, just you don't you don't hear about certain things after a certain time period is up. It's just no no one no one actually uh, says I will no longer be caring about this in six months. Yeah, you just you, I mean you don't make it blatant. I guess this kind no. of with the org- organic version, it it um, you know either something else replaces it in the news or or perhaps there is a solution or someone who is you know high up in the movement gets cancelled or something you know there tends mm. to be something that might get in the way of its progress, you know? Um, but with this, it just so, it felt incredibly comfortable um, to put a timestamp on a country's, um, on a country's own destiny. And I think that, mm. you know, it, it, it speaks for me and kind of why I wrote the book about kind of the callousness in the way um, the West has for, for, you know, since the, um, effective creation of modern Africa has treated African countries um, as a place that is sort of hapless and and not responsible or does is not equipped to um, be responsible for its own destiny. Um, and so I think that that that's something that in this case is is incredibly frustrating. Mm. One of the questions that I was thinking about, so like I, I was I was wondering what happened to Invisible Children like after the whole Coney thing and like they didn't quite fold, but they just, um, there was some controversy among like one of like that had been caused by one of the founders um, who from what I understand, like had a public breakdown um, partly because of like the backlash towards and the criticism that the organization got. Um, I don't want to comment too much about that because of like, you know, mental health sensitive issue and everything but what it seems to kind of um what seems to have happened is that invisible children like had to really scale down their ambitions and also step away from after they like failed to sort of deliver like more viral content or crucially like failed to capture joseph coney um they had to like scale back so according to the new york times which which posted a piece uh about i think earlier this month actually um about like the 10-year anniversary of coney 2012 um uh, invisible children are apparently now only focusing on local programs in central Africa and they barely post social media plays like a minor role in its strategy. Um, and I, I guess I was also thinking about like, could like see like, is the capacity for like another Coney moment? And like, I don't really think there is on the one hand, I think there have been similar ones. So like, I know the Island Cody thing, uh, in 2015 was kind of one of the, uh, was like one of the kind of viral images that um, encourage European countries to accept Syrian refugees for a very short period of time um, before like, you know, betraying them. Uh, but like, I can't really think of any other type of like campaign or strategy that has really been able to like cultivate that same level of like following. And I wonder deeper, like what, whether you think that that might be because of the, the expansion of like digital culture and just the idea that like we're in 2012, like a marketing agency could like concoct a, vi- a viral strategy that was successful. Like they can't really do that anymore. Like it's extremely difficult with like both influencer economies, but also just like the amount of information that's available or whether it's kind of, or, you know, 
a reflection of like broader cynicism the idea that every time we've like people have been encouraged to put their faith in like social media and posting and like raising awareness making celebrities out of people and stuff it never really kind of yields the kind of progressive results that they would like for that to happen and like i guess like the black lives matter stuff is like a good example of that once again but i wondered what your thoughts were like what is this kind of like a technical problem of like the internet is too big to kind of like cultivate a campaign like this or have we as like digital users and natives and stuff like have we kind of like our have have our attitudes about the possibilities of online culture changed like partly as a result of the effects of coney 2012 i mean the first word that came to mind was cynical um i think we're way too cynical for uh an organized campaign of this nature um campaigns can be born out of an organic moment for example the you know the video of george floyd um and the sort of you know if you look at sort of the defund the police movement um you know that perhaps is an example of something um that maybe could have done with a some sort of kind of organized um you know campaign around okay you know by defund the police here's what we're proposing we mean by that um that people could get on board with um because i know that you know defund the police is certainly something in america that's been used um it's now kind of considered as more of a negative slogan um and more harmful um so i think that's an example of something but i think it would have to start from an a, a genuine organic moment um and i think that we would you know, and I, I look at Vice and other youth media companies, our first thought would would certainly be to quickly look at who's behind the video, um, where did the video come from, um, before we start, you know, smashing the share button. Um, and I think Tony 2012, again, I, I can only imagine that people um, would be terrified to be the next Tony 2012. Like, yeah. I think that like I, yeah. if you're creating it, I, I I just know like if 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 Vice tried to do something similar in a meeting, I you know flashbacks to twenty twelve would would hit my brain. I'd be like like we can't just you know it's it's all yeah like we we can't really we, I don't think we would be able to get away with something like that. You know, mm. certain it's interesting. I think in the UK more than probably in other cultures, you still have uh, a, a lot of the newspapers, especially like the Daily Mail, who are obsessed with today we're launching a campaign to do this thing. Um, yeah. And it's often a campaign for something that is already about to be fixed or something. Like they'll just, it'll, so at the moment they're trying to do a campaign to keep uh, uh, the Three Lions song as like the official oh uh, the, the official football yeah. anthem because someone at the FA somewhere said that maybe it shouldn't be like the official song as if like, fans ever cared that it was like yeah. official or unofficial. Well, like, that's, that's, yeah. that's very that's very funny. That's a very, very funny gonna, thing to, to throw your weight behind. What are they gonna change it to? Um what they were proposing to change it. I think that, well actually like the from the free line stuff is a really interesting example of like the types of campaigns that newspapers are like willing to run. I guess like you have some so like the mirror for example kind of runs social like social justice campaigns. I can't remember what their last one was, but I think it was like linked to cost of living and everything. But like the mm. the kind of very famous tabloid ones tend to be around cultural issues right so like the free lion stuff the um uh so i guess like, stuff yeah the the whole like um the the recent one with like the mail on sunday i think where it was just like uh where they sort of platformed like a bunch of turfs to uh like get keir starmer to kind of like make an opinion about gender or whatever 
yeah. So the thing about like the tabloid, um, the, the tabloid like cultural issues is that in one way they seem to be a lot easier to kind of wage because they can kind of morph very quickly. Um, but they also don't really have like the tangible endpoints. And like, that's why the whole like Coney having a sort of like deadline that we need to get, we need to defeat the Lord's resistance army, uh, by like this period of time, I find very amusing, but it's also just like, you know, the reason why I think like the mistake that invisible children made was to set that arbitrary deadline was because like the thing that we've learned from tabloid newspapers and just like cultural campaigns is that the key isn't to necessarily win them. It's to kind of create something so nebulous and like, easy to kind of an amorphous but like it can kind of mesh into anything so you have this like ongoing campaign that like is much more about like vibes than like yeah, necessarily exactly. anything tangible mm. yeah like and, and so for something like that all the daily mail has to do is do a spread that says um seeing football's coming home you know and then it'll just do it'll then just publish online like clips of fans singing football's coming home and claim to have won that campaign mm. Um, and I saw, I think that if we wanted, I mean, you know, of course, uh, you know, Vice and other youth media companies have run, um, you know, campaigns to get young people registered to vote. And, and I, I guess kind of things can live in that world, but I think to, to try and, um, and outside of kind of, you know, uh, email your MP about this, I think it's very difficult to, I, w I probably wouldn't advise anyone to try and do like some kind of slick campaign with films and videos and um that's anything other than trying to educate people on a certain issue um i think it, people are just way too too cynical um to 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 get away with something like coney 2012 that has uh that has a deadline mm. Well, Deepa, we've sort of kept you here for a while, unfortunately. Um, and this has like been a really fascinating conversation that we could have like had for a lot longer. Um, but I guess like as a way of wrapping up both like this uh, this section and this episode, um, I sort of wanted to go wanted to go back to like the African countries that were implicated in the Coney 2012 situation, and just like I guess this broader question of like how they sort of view and understand the internet right now. So like. Um, I have like family members who like are from Uganda and like still live there. And like, they talk a lot about like the expansion of, you know, both like Ugandan economy, but also it's embrace of technology. And like, it's mm -hmm. kind of unique and actual, actually in a weird way, it's a like, very optimistic um, approach and understanding of like the internet, right? Like, um, you know, they are very, you, you know, they have, a, it seems like they have a much more optimistic, like outlook of what the possibilities of technology can bring them. Um, and I sort of wondered whether, um, how that sort of related to uh, the past where like maybe it well like maybe Coney 2012 is like uh, it, it, it was like an example of how Western internet culture like dominated views and understandings of like how we kind of understood yeah, how we understood like major African countries um, and I wonder whether now like kind of like the embrace of technology but also the kind of development of like organic internet cultures outside of the West whether that is being used to sort of um, like uh to like confront the the images and the uh the narratives that western uh understandings of the like, african countries have gone so i guess as a way of wrapping up i just wanted to ask like whether like how you kind of think that these countries what their relationship with like online culture is and how much of that has been shaped by campaigns like coney but also just the broader um yeah the broader kind of images and narratives that have been placed on africa by like western users yeah um i mean i think it's been probably one of the most important developments in the past decade especially um one thing that the internet has offered 
African country, especially young people, is the opportunity to tell their own stories um, mm. and to tell it in a way that hasn't been appreciated in the past. Um, you know, we, we've uh, unfortunately uh, been subjected to the West interpretation of, of quote unquote Africa and um, the realities across the African continent. And what the internet has done and what social media especially has done is both allow people to tell their own stories. Um, and when I say social media, I kind of mean like with like YouTube and, and now with TikTok and all these things, um, but as well for people to, to group together um, and to, you know, push, whether it's in music, um, you know, film culture, to create these sort of groups that have been able to uh, spread the word about their, the individual, mainly youth-led scenes across their country. Um, and also one thing that's been key is that a lot of uh, recent youth-led activism movements uh, in, in countries um, has been massively social media driven. Um, and so you're getting a lot of young people trying to define the future of their own countries um, for themselves using social media, not only to organize within their own countries, but to reach out to the rest of the world and say, you know, here's what we're doing in uh, in Nigeria or, or Sudan or um, in Ghana or the Ivory Coast um, to, to really, really try and, you know, push their own day-to-day -day realities um, in a way that just hasn't really been um, done in the past, you know, if you wanted to, un or the way people previously understood Africa, it was purely through either these um, these global uh, charity campaigns, um, you know, comic relief and and mm. Band Aid and and the rest, um, or it was through Hollywood, um, which has you know depicted Africa in this comical way. Um, you know, for decades now, and obviously through literature as well. Mm. Um, and what the internet has done is it's given people the opportunity to do that, to sort of bypass um, what were the only other avenues, which was uh, Western-led popular culture and charity campaigns um, to, you know, produce musicians, comedians, uh, writers, filmmakers who are using the internet um, to certainly... Uh, spread a very different, more realistic narrative of the day-to-day -day realities of individual countries across Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the things that, you know, really excited me about writing Africa's Not a Country is just the, um, it's just, just, is just, this is the perfect time um, looking around the continent, seeing how many uh, young people are using their talents and using the internet um, to try and, present a more realistic picture of their individual country and how um, there are nuances and, and specificities I think has it's, it's been has been so important to um, changing uh, the world's perceptions of uh, the second largest continent yeah Mm. I think that's like a very good and optimistic way to end stuff. I think, you know, we, yeah. we, get, we get that very rarely. Um, so Deepa, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and like, thank you for coming on. Um, if people want to buy your book or keep up with your work, how can they do that? Uh, Africa's Not a Country is out now. Uh, it's available where books are sold uh, in real life and on the internet. <laughs> uh, and yes, and I work at Vice as well. Um, so yeah, 
checkoutvice.com. Yeah, we'll check out vice.com. We'll also add the links to that. You can buy the book from Penguin directly or buy it from like lots of good bookshops. Try not to buy with Amazon. I'm not going to tell you not to, but like try not to. Um, you can follow us at 10k postpod on twitter.com. Uh, you can follow me at hkizvani on twitter.com. Uh, I have lots of bad takes. Uh, Phoebe, if people want to follow the stuff and uh, follow your stuff and what you're doing, how can they do that? You can follow my Seinfeld podcast, which is Masters of Our Domain at Masters of Pod. Great. This show is produced by Devin. You can follow them at Devin underscore on Earth. You can also listen to Kill James Bond, uh, which is uh, their podcast. Uh, I think that's it. I know we're running out of time on the Zoom. So like, we uh, are. yeah, so on that note, we'll catch you later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.